This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Bird. The city of Chattanooga is getting ready to vote for a new mayor and city council. Early voting will begin February 10th and end on February 25th. The deadline to request an absentee ballot is February 23rd. Election day is March 2nd. Please visit the Hamilton County Election Commission website for more details. I'm here with Marie Mott. She is running for Chattanooga City Council, District 8. And Marie, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and about the district that you're running in. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My name is uh, Marie Mott. I am a native Chattanoogan. I was born and raised in District 8, right on the line of Churchville, Bushtown, which are two historically African-American uh, communities. And so I was raised on the same street as my parents, my aunt, my grandmother. And so I just grew up in a community that had everything that we need. I worshiped uh, in this district. I could walk to a recreation center. We used to have mm-hmm. a bakery where my great-grandfather worked. We had a grocery store. We had everything that we needed in the community. And so um, now all those resources for the most part are almost gone or are barely hanging on. And so I'm, I'm running for city council because I want to bring opportunities back to people in the district and mm-hmm. just want to see all of Chattanooga move forward and not just pockets. Right. So kind of describe your overall vision in terms of your platform that you're running on in both your district and the city as a whole. What are the strengths and weaknesses generally that you're trying to address? Awesome. Uh, so my platform has four principles and that is environmental stewardship. I live in a lead Superfund site. So putting the environment as a part of my platform is very important. Uh, of course, community safety, quality and affordable housing and business and technology. Uh, the strengths of my district, I would have to say are the people, the culture, mm-hmm. you know, just the tenacity, uh, the spirit of individuals, how we can always come together, how we work together, uh, just people who love on one another in community. I would say that uh, the weakness of the district or even just Chattanooga is just that so many people have abdicated their power, feeling like mm-hmm. nothing will change, feeling like, uh, it, you know, the powerful people on the mountain run our city right. and it just is what it is. And so hopefully people uh, see that not only do I have a platform, but I've been out here working in the community for years. I care about mm-hmm. this community. I, I love this community. And I, I, like I said, I just want to see everybody move forward and not, mm-hmm. uh, not just uh, the affluent, not the wealthy or special interest groups. Everybody had that opportunity right. in a beautiful city like Chattanooga to be the best that they can be. And that's something I, I hear a lot about when I'm canvassing listeners for, you know, potential questions for the mayor and city council candidates. Um, you know, Chattanooga gets a reputation as a good old boys club. And mm-hmm. we feel like, you know, the average citizen isn't involved in the decision making process. So what are your kind of concrete proposals in order to get people more involved with city government and make people feel like they're being heard? Absolutely. So uh as one of the leaders of last summer's protest, 
one of the things that we started doing to get people engaged was just seeing what people were interested in. I think a lot of times we right. don't ask people, what do they like to do? Right. Uh, so we started partnering with people in various different facets, whether that was uh, coming together to help with our children and the needs that they have during COVID-19 in schools, mm-hmm. partnering with Healing Gardens, Cha. Uh, to work on community gardens in the city and get your hands dirty. And, and, you know, we've, we've just made partnerships and collaborations with people. I think that's one way to get people engaged. But I think the other portion of what we wanted to do, uh, we did during the protest and as a, as an outcome of the protest was educating the people Mm -hmm. on why, like this, the reason for this podcast, why is civics Mm -hmm. important? How do you get engaged? You know, who are these people that are your city council persons or your mayor? What are they responsible for? What vision do they have for the community? And then when are the meetings? How Mm -hmm. do I access those meetings? And learning what is discussed in the meetings. And so having someone who can break it down for you, and I do that a lot. I've been doing that for years. That's how Mm -hmm. the platform, going to the city council meeting long before anybody really cared about it and breaking down what decisions were being made, what the outcome of a vote was, what is Mm -hmm. the potential impact to the community, and then really just rallying people around the budgeting for outcomes process. Uh, Most people don't know that prior to this last year, um, the last budgeting for outcomes process, only about 200 people out of over 180,000 participated. That means most people either A, (laughs) don't have any accessibility to the meetings, or B, clue about a budget. And so educating the people on why the budgeting um, for outcomes process is important and you getting involved. But as far as a proposal, my way for getting people more involved is I think we need uh, a more robust way of getting people involved around the budgeting process. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that was proposed in 2017 by Concerned Citizens for Justice was participatory budgeting, which allows community members to bring forth their own ideas utilize Mm -hmm. their own taxpayer dollars, work with people who are experienced in the city of Chattanooga to bring those ideas to the community so we can begin uh, taking a little bit of responsibility for the very communities that we live in. That's called putting power back into the hands of the people and at the same time helping them to mature where they don't put that responsibility all on the shoulders of people in government, but they begin mm-hmm. to have some power amongst themselves and you get to see the outcome of what you want in your community. Right. So participatory budgeting would be one of the one of the ways that I would like to continue to engage the community. So the way the city charter is written right now, the mayor leads that budget writing process. So I'm curious, is this something you would want to work with the mayor on and have them lead into this participatory budget? Or would is this something you would want to change the charter to make sure it's enshrined for you know future administrations? I would want it to be enshrined. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a process that New York City uses, Chicago, various different countries utilize participatory budgeting. Chattanooga has such a long way to go to catch up with engaging uh, the people in our city. Um, And so I would like to see things like this be concrete so they don't have to change with a new regime that comes in in four years. The people still have the power to decide what they want in their community. Right. So it sounds like one of the questions I've been asking a lot of the city council candidates, uh, it sounds like in your case, this would be more of a short-term question because your longer-term ideas to get the people directly involved through the charter into participatory budgeting. In the short term, 
the city council currently has the right to amend or even reject the mayor's budget proposal when he, whenever he brings it to the vote in, I think it's in June. Um, and in the past, it seems like the city council has kind of deferred to the budgeting for outcomes process. I know uh, the main reason this question has gotten brought up and people are actually interested in the budget is because of the protests this summer. And because we had 200 people sign up to speak at the city council meeting, that people are starting to realize, hey, this is the budget, this is the voice that we have, let's go use it, but they don't really understand how to affect change. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, as a city council person, do you think the city council needs to exercise that authority that they hold over the budget? Or do you think it's, it's better to kind of defer to that process that's in place and get people involved early? Um, I think the city council needs to take a little bit more um, responsibility within what we're doing mm -hmm. at this point. At the end of the day, uh, city council persons are elected too, not just the mayor. Mm -hmm. And we don't need a continuation of what many people feel are rubber stamp budgets that city council persons get at the last minute where they have not had an opportunity to really uh, ask questions, give some pushback to the mayor. People need to um, see the executive and the legislative branch of our government work together. And so uh, if we don't want people in the community giving up their power, we don't want our elected officials to do that either. And so I think there needs there's an opportunity for there to be um, an open line of communication between the city council and the mayor from the beginning of the budget. There needs to be some discussions around what are the priorities that the mayor has for this upcoming budget. That should be discussed with the city council persons. We, if we truly believe in engaging the people in the community, uh, then we have to take the information ourselves back to the people in the community. And so uh, I think there's just, I, I look at from the position of there's an opportunity for us to do so much better than what we're doing right now. But to say that you don't have any power is is ridiculous. The, the city council has a lot of power and it's time mm -hmm, for us definitely. to like it. <laughs> um, and again, like I said, the, the issue that really brought this to the forefront of a lot of people's minds was the protest this summer, which leads us into kind of the national and local conversation around policing mm -hmm. and all the different ideas that are out there of how to make communities feel safe, how to make, you know, citizens feel safe with their police officers and like they're truly there to serve and protect. And those ideas are all over the place from raising the budget so that we can have better training to divest and reinvest to defund the police. It's, it's a whole gamut and you can't make everybody happy. So I'm wondering what are your policy proposals to make sure that Chattanoogans feel safe and that police officers are truly upholding their vows to serve and protect? Absolutely. So I think the first thing that we have to uh, understand is police are a reactionary force, period. So they're responding at the end of social circumstances, whether we're talking about a physical harm or a property crime, they're showing up after it's already happened. Right. Uh, so that's not a deterrence. It's not stopping any crime. We have uh, raised the amount that we invested into the Chattanooga Police Department in the last four to five years by $20 million went from about 55 to $75 million. We have not stopped gun violence. We have not stopped gang violence. We haven't stopped our children from wandering our streets. We haven't stopped uh, innocent bystanders from being impacted. So the question becomes, if we invested on the 
end of a social circumstance and that did not get us what we needed, we might need to go to the beginning of the social circumstance and break the cycle so that we don't have this force that is coming in at the end that's not really not really solving anything. And so my viewpoint is that we have to uh, divest a little bit of the police budget and reinvest that in things that are going to be preventative measures. Whether we're talking about exactly what has come out of this current uh, budgeting for outcomes process, which is the demand for mental and behavioral health services. There's so many people in our communities that are dealing with uh, just so many things from uh, mental, behavioral health, things exacerbated by COVID-19, losing your job, being cooped up in the house, um, <laughs> that uh, some, we, need to cre- we need to reimagine what public safety looks like. <laughs> and instead of it being a situation that ends up in either a potential uh, police violence situation or funneling people through our carceral state. How about investing in education? Uh, we tout so much that we got out of the education business in 1997. And I think that it's absolutely pathetic that we pat ourselves on the back that we don't invest in our children. Um, we need to invest in education. I should not, I, I live in Oak Grove it, on the backside of Highland Park in a community that is rapidly developing And property values are raising through the roof. And yet I don't even have a rec center in in my community for the children here. (laughs) Things to think about. You know, our children are wandering the streets and getting into trouble because they have nothing to do. Why is it that we don't have in the most beautiful city in the nation, two times running, children paddleboarding down the riverfront, rock climbing, um, you know, canoeing, all of these various different things that they could be doing to enjoy the beauty and the surroundings of their city. I have so many ideas from expanding public transportation, investing in education. These were the demands that we had at the protest. But what I want to see is no disrespect to the police. I still believe that they serve a function uh, as far as for people in the community who are of the belief that they still want to have a presence there that is going to quote unquote, keep them safe. However, at this point in time, I would like to see uh, services reallocated uh, to benefit the people in the community so they don't need to depend on the on the police, but they we can start breaking some cycles. Right. So you've teed up uh, a bunch of different questions that, that I'd like to get to. So I'm just going to kind of pick one of the okay. directions that we can we can go in here. You mentioned, you know, Chattanooga being named best outdoor city twice by Outdoor Magazine. Uh, you know, we're making a name for ourselves as an outdoor destination. And that has a lot of impact on, you know, obviously brings a lot of tourism dollars and things like that. It brings a lot of people, maybe remote workers who you know, are not tied down to an office and they're moving here so they can be closer to the outdoors. Um, and it also, you know, raises the question, like you said, why aren't our children paddleboarding down the river? Why are these communities historically disconnected from the outdoor resources that we have on hand? So kind of a dual question here, how do we, A, make sure that these historically neglected communities are are connected with these beautiful resources that we have? And two, how do we manage the growth to make sure that you know we're attracting all these people, which is great, but growth can lead to a lot of issues. And how do we manage that? Uh, the first thing is, is I would have to uh, borrow a little bit from Monty Brule, and that would be from the perspective of I see Chattanooga marketing itself to people all across the country, and mm-hmm. yet we're marketing to people 
And with us having received the award being the most beautiful city, two times running in the nation, we have not marketed ourselves to companies to partner with the city of Chattanooga for, uh, why can't Chattanooga be the face of uh, REI or, or the face mm-hmm. of North Face or the face of these outdoor sports brands that really could partner and link with Chattanooga. And then we could take some of that revenue and connect people who are in disenfranchised communities to the beauty that's surrounding the city. Mm-hmm. Um, however, on the back end side, yes, there are some serious protections that need to be put in place to make sure that as we grow this city, we're not gentrifying and displaced, and particularly African-Americans out of the city of Chattanooga. And a lot of that has to do with um, certain protections that we are putting into place uh, out of all of the historically designated communities that we have in Chattanooga. None of them are Mm African-American. We might need to fix that. What about um, how are we investing into affordable housing? Um, Mm -hmm. What about uh, we rarely bring up pilots, payment in lieu of taxes, uh, Mm -hmm. TIFs that we that we give to developers to come in and develop these areas? So there, that kind of segues, of course, into another conversation about pilots and TIFs and uh, Mm -hmm. tax incentives that we give to people to develop. I think one of the things that we have to uh, think about going forward is uh, one of the things that Helen Burns Sharps talks about on ATM chat accountability for taxpayer money is doing a but for test like right but for this tax incentive and I'm getting ready to give to a developer would they be able to do this with without it or with it uh, right from the looks of it, we're just kind of giving it, giving out pilots left and right. And so we're not considering the impact to communities, the impact to people. It is God awful with our current wage stagnation as a city, uh, how much it costs to live in Chattanooga, that literally we are right neck and neck with Atlanta and Atlanta has 20 times the opportunity in, in job mm-hmm. market. So these are the things that we have to think about going forward, protections for people in the community, whether that's historical designation, but also considering from a council perspective, because these are things that we vote on, development. Mm -hmm. And I want to back up a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar with TIFs and pilots. Um, Essentially, these are are tax programs that... Mm -hmm you know, allow basically deductions for developers on their taxes. If they buy a property, the land uh, property tax gets frozen, they build their buildings, and now they're stuck at that lower rate. Um, and like you said, this but for test where we have to decide if this developer comes in and builds this building, could they have done that with the TIF or without the TIF? And if they could have done it without the TIF, why are we giving them the TIF and, and foregoing those tax dollars? So I just want to make sure all our listeners are clear on that because we're getting really into the weeds here and I love it. Uh, but I want to make sure our listeners are, are catching up here. Um, no kind of continuing on this, this track, there's, you know, we've talked about development and gentrification. And, you know, one of the ways that the city council, I mean, in, in my own personal opinion, this is the, the primary thing that the city council does right now is they're in charge of all of the land use regulations and all of the land development regulations. And that includes smaller things like stormwater, steep slopes, uh, things of that nature, but it also includes the zoning code, which is just instrumental in how our city gets developed. And so I'm wondering, what are your views? And again, we can get into the weeds on this 
what do you think the city council can do to better manage development in the city, you know, using the tools that they have at their disposal, which are, are you know, compared to oversight over the budget and things like that, the tools over land use and development are pretty powerful. Absolutely. So I just look at other cities that are being progressive in California and Illinois and Kentucky. And some of the things that I'm seeing uh, is uh, people getting away from or basically uh, moving away from R1 zoning, which is single family dwellings. Mm -hmm. One of the things that most people don't know is our current zoning structure is almost 50 plus years outdated. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think one of the things that we have to understand is I, be I believe housing is a human right. Uh, everyone deserves a roof over their head because we sure should not be comfortable seeing people on our streets. However, everyone doesn't want or need a 1500 square foot home. Um, some people just need a micro house, right? 600 square feet, they're single, uh, they have no children, uh, they're a senior citizen, they just need a place to stay that's affordable, mm -hmm. clean, has a bed, a, a toilet, a shower, you know, a place for them to cook food and somewhere to put a television. Mm -hmm. And so um, having the flexibility to where we can build for the needs of particular communities, we might have a certain community for individuals who want tiny homes. Uh, I've seen out west as I've traveled before Corona, where people have built entire complexes out of shipping containers. <laughs> what about accessory dwelling units? We've had conversations around those. And so right. uh, triplexes, quadplexes, just the flexibility in housing, I think, is the way forward. But I also think uh, that we have to have a conversation again about uh, not just changing the structure of how we develop, but also have a conversation about now that we've developed Chattanooga so much, how do we encourage developers to think beyond their pocket? And so um, one of the things that I've been talking to community members about uh, here, because we have Collier Construction um, working on uh, the mill factory project here right off Main Street in Oak Grove is uh, basically what is called a commercial linkage fee. And so every developer that gets to do a project in the city of Chattanooga has to commit between five to $17 per square foot uh, into a affordable housing fund. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to have conversations about inclusionary housing where we encourage uh, large time and large scale developers like Collier Construction to commit to maybe 10 to 15% of a project to be slated for affordable housing for people in the community. There's just so many, again, I, the thing that I am encouraged about in this race is I see opportunities. I don't just mm -hmm. see problems, but I just see opportunities for us to move forward. But I think we have to change and update so many of the, the ways that we do business. Mm -hmm. And then something that's that's linked, and you, you touched on this briefly earlier, something that's linked to land use and development and gentrification is transportation, mm -hmm. uh, especially in areas where people can't afford a car, uh, can they get safely to and from their job? So I'm wondering what are your ideas for transportation planning in the city and what do you think the city council can do to make sure that our transportation network is, is adequately serving everyone? Because again, this is one of the areas where you, there's a lot of competing interests 
So what direction do you think we should go on that? I think one of the things that uh, the city council, as well as the mayor, uh, and we really need to do this together, is we have to begin to create uh, partnerships with companies and private interest here. And we do that, we call it public-private partnerships here in the city of Chattanooga, which we're famous for. But um, if you want people to be employed, you have to get them from where they are to where you are. And so it benefits companies in the short, medium and long-term to have employees actually on the job doing what they're supposed to do. So encouraging these companies to partner with the city of Chattanooga and seeing what we can do on our end through the budget, but what other people can do, even if it's, you know, maybe Blue Cross Blue Shield, they got a tax incentive, decides that they're going to put into the transportation fund because they want to get people back and forth to Cameron Hill. Um, Just thinking about how do we get Um, How do we upgrade our system? And we already have an outline plan on doing that beyond CARTA. So of course, (laughs) CARTA is like the the starting point of how we should want to encourage uh, equitable transportation here in in the city of Chattanooga. And that should come with, uh, we had the CARTA study in 2017 uh, that basically came down to CARTA is not, not improving because it's underfunded. And how do we uh, increase ridership without A, cutting the routes that exist and expanding routes? And so um, there's a conversation about how do we do that? And that's where we can help with some of the budget reallocation can go into transportation. Um, But there's also, we can't just depend on one way of getting people around, right? Mm Um, again, we are a tourist city. So these are things that we have to think about when we develop a community. Is it walkable? What is it walkable to? Is it on a bus line? Have we considered a bus line for this community that we're getting right. ready to redevelop? How far is it away from a bus line? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the medium plan that is with the Chamber of Commerce, where we're talking about having, I believe, a 17-mile beltway in the city of Chattanooga. And then, of course, the long term is uh, a light rail system, which would really work well in Chattanooga with all the railways that we have. um, That actually, if you look at the plan for that, it has a stop right in the middle of East Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. So there's so many things that are on the table, uh, short, medium, and long-term for how we could uh, increase uh, walkability, scalability, and even diverse options of people being able to get around. What it always comes down to is funding. And the city of Chattanooga can and should not pay for everything. We're gonna have Mm -hmm. to rally with other individuals by making partnerships and and get them to understand this benefits you in the long run, getting people back and forth to work. And just uh, this Chamber of Commerce report you mentioned, do you know if that's publicly available? Absolutely, it is. Okay, I will try and get a link from you for that after, and I'll put it in the show notes for all of our listeners. I like to, whenever a candidate brings up a resource like this, I like to make sure our listeners can easily access it. Moving on to a different topic, Chattanooga has been hit very hard by COVID in the past few months. And it's something I have not been focusing a lot on the aspects of, you know, the health department side of things, you know, managing the disease itself, just because, you know, the vaccine's already rolling out by the time elections come around. Hopefully, I'm just kind of crossing my fingers, hopefully it's not an issue. 
but I am worried, and, and I think the city council candidates on this incoming term are gonna have a lot to handle with the economic impacts. We are seeing small businesses really struggling. We are seeing people in danger of you know, being evicted from their homes or struggling to make ends meet. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the city council can do to mitigate the economic impacts of COVID-19? Excellent question. So one of the things that uh, that I had an opportunity to see was a partnership between CNE and East Tennessee Legal Aid uh, to offer legal assistance with lawyers here in the city of Chattanooga to ensure that people were not illegally evicted out of their houses. And so, uh, how can the city support CNE continuing with? Uh, that partnership. We right. did see where President Joe Biden is extending the moratorium for evictions, which gives us an opportunity to continue to help people. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, I pray, fingers crossed, that we can get some federal funding back to our city once again to continue to help people um, who rent and who have mortgages be able mm -hmm. to stay in their homes. I think the thing that um, has been sort of an issue is not really just people in the community. It's been also business, small business in particular impact. There have been so many small businesses that have had to shut their doors. And one of the ways that we could uh, sort of mitigate that would, I, I demanded before the council went on winter break, we have a rainy day fund. If there ever was a time for us to dip into a rainy day fund for a disaster, it is right now. We, we didn't just have COVID last year, we had a tornado. <laughs> so <laughs> we are having to recover still from the economic and um, the infrastructure impact from a tornado. And at the same time, we're dealing with a uh, natural disaster that, uh, again, the Chamber of Commerce has stated that they believe it's going to take uh, two to three years for us to economically recover from that. <laughs> So if, if we don't want to, to see a continuation of individuals who own small businesses that employ people in our communities, which has a furthering ripple effect, um, be even more impacted than they already are, we've got to help small businesses stay afloat and keep their doors open. And this is what people pay taxes for. Mm -hmm. The people really, so the people in Chattanooga don't really ask or expect in a lot of instances too much, but this is the one time where uh, people need, need help and we should mm -hmm. be helping them. Mm -hmm. uh, I've just got one, one last question. I just want to make sure, you know, this this podcast is really supposed to be a sounding board for the candidates for you to connect to voters and let them know what you're all about. So I just want to make sure, is there anything else that you are passionate about addressing, a, a, you know, a platform plank that you are running on that we haven't covered in our questions already? Well, I think we have pretty much covered everything. You know, I'm just appreciative of uh, the opportunity to be able to come on and talk about these things. I want people to know that, you know, there's a lot that Chattanooga is facing. Mm -hmm. And what I want people to shift the mindset to is, yes, we have problems. Yes, we have uh, a good old boy system here. Yes, there are a lot of issues, but uh, as we saw with the protest, you know, one of the things that I remember is a certain individual who as a council person is now running for mayor being on television last year and saying, 
uh, making any changes to the budget was impossible. And only three months after that, we ended up having budget amendments. So I want people to know that in my own power or maybe Nathan, in your own power, not much is possible, but as a unified front, as individuals in the community who come together, who begin to uh, get engaged and educated and informed that share ideas and step out there and, and begin to demand things that I believe that's how things are gonna change. Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. Uh, when we began to take a stand and and stand as a unified front and demand better, better from our leadership, we will get better. And so that's what I want people to, to know is that we've done well in Chattanooga, but that has not been for everybody. We can go from good to great, mm -hmm. from just enough to abundance, but that is going to, going to require us to tackle some very hard issues and we can do that. Great. Well, Marie Mott running for District 8, where can people find out more about you? Absolutely. So www.mariemott.com. That is my website. You can call me, text me through there. Uh, you can find me on all social media platforms at mariemott2021. Um, my email address is mariemott, that's M-A-R-I-E-M-O-T-T, -T, 2021, at gmail.com. Please reach out to me. I am here for you. Great. Thank you for your time and good luck in March. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chatcivics or visit the website chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening.